0: So you've created a Python-based open-source project, and it's starting to take off. You're getting contributors, lots of buzz in the podcast space, and more. But you have that day job working on Java still. How do you make that transition from popular hobby project to a full-time job? After all, you're giving away your open-source project for free, right? Well, on this episode, I put together an amazing panel of guests who all have done exactly this. Turn their project into full-time work and even companies in some cases. We have Samuel Colvin, Gina Huska, Sebastian Ramirez, Charlie Marsh, Will McGugan, and Eric Holscher on to share their stories. This is Talk Python to me, episode 448, recorded December seventh, 2023. <music> Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at talkpython, both on bostodon.org. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by BaseDash. BaseDash uses AI to build a dashboard for your database. Get a custom admin view in your Postgres, Microsoft SQL Server, MySQL, MariaDB, or Redshift database. Get started for free at talkpython.fm/basedash. And it's brought to you by Sentry. Don't let those errors go unnoticed. Use Sentry. Get started at talkpython.fm/sentry. Hello, everyone. Charlie, Will, Eric, Sebastian, Gina, and Samuel. What a big group of people we have here today. An awesome, awesome group. Thanks for being here, everyone. It's going to be super fun to have you on the show. You know, I know there's so many people out there that are dreaming of an open source project or even working on open source and contributing to it, but it's something they squeeze in the last hour of their day. And at some point, all of you have made this amazing transition to where there's enough support, there's enough interest in what you all built that becomes your full-time thing, right? Which is, I know for many out there, living the dream. So you all are living the dream. I'm, I'm, <laughs> hopefully you feel that way. But it's going to be really great to kind of just explore your projects, how do you make that transition, and you know what you're up to. So we have uh, Samuel Colvin on from Pydantic. And he has the tightest schedule. He's squeezing us in on a far-flung trip, uh, work trip. So let's go to you first, Samuel. Just you know, tell people a bit about who you are and, and what your project is to get started.
1: Yeah, I'm Samuel. I maintain Pydantic, which is a data validation library for Python that uses hints. So those weird things you've seen after colon in Python that mostly do nothing unless you run MyPy or PyWrite. Pydantic basically enforces them. Almost exactly a year ago, I was uh I was sort of working on pedantic full time back then, but really spending my own money to do so. And uh, a big American VC got in touch. And fast forward, I, I raised some money and started a company. Yeah, beginning of this year, I hired now now 10 people, and I'm actually, as you mentioned, I'm in Istanbul at the moment with the whole team. It turns out if you have a team with Americans, Iranians, and Russians, that Istanbul is one of the few places that you can actually meet efficiently. So yeah having a really fun week in Istanbul, mostly working together and then going out for dinner, which is where we are at the moment. I hope that's a like, cool. good quick summary.
0: Absolutely. And what a cool experience that you get to hang out with all these people talking about your project in Istanbul. I just had, by the way, I just had...
1: Uh, I would just think that the other thing I would add is that like, one of the one of the best bits of it has been being able to hire friends of mine from open source people who had, I think all but two of the people here have contributed to Fidantic before we started the company, which is how I yeah, I hired the first, I think, six people, and then, and then a few more. So one of the best bits has been hiring other people to come and work on open source with me while still being able to like yeah, pay them properly. It's been really fun.
0: Yeah, awesome. I see a lot of people shaking their head out there as well. I just, coincidentally, I recently had Sydney Runkle on Who Works With You, and she's such an inspiration. That show is not out yet, but has already been done yet due to the weird time shifting of podcasting. So it'll be out before this, but it's not out yet, so... Anyway, uh, very very cool team you got there. I guess we'll go around the order of the, the video. <laughs> Pretty bunch of pictures here. So, Charlie, you're up next. Uh, quick quick bit about you. Hey, so uh,
2: I'm Charlie. I am the author of Ruff, which is a Python linter, code formatter, and code transformation tool written in Rust. I started started working on Ruff about a year ago like maybe like October last year. Similar
0: time frame to Samuel, yeah.
2: Yeah, and um, I, I worked on it full time for a while, you know, similar to Samuel, although probably not for quite quite as long. I was working on it full time without any funding. And then uh, similarly, I started a company around around Rough and really around the vision of trying to build high performance Python tools. So take some of the things that make Rough nice to use and popular and well-liked and try to apply those principles to other parts of the, the Python tool chain. Yeah, we're a team of six, and we're fully remote. So no, no two of us live in the same in the same. I guess a couple of us live in the same country, but most <laughs> of us, most of us live in different countries. Yeah, and we span basically U.S. Central Time to I don't know what the, we have one. We have one person in in India and one person in Minneapolis, and that kind of stretches like the full time zones of
0: the team. That's a good stretch. That's a good stretch there. Well, yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on rough. It is really, really. Taken off, and I know the guy right below you and uh, squares <laughs> 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 Sebastian. Was I saw him saying nice things about it with Fast API and, and so on.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. Thanks a lot. It, it's just funny because I think I was saying before I started recording, I think when I came on Talk Python last time, I think that might have been my first time ever on a podcast. So, and it was to talk about Rough, and so I was like, Oh wow, people care about what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's super cool. And Pydantic and Fast API were some of the earliest adopters that people had heard of. So um, they were like very early on in the in the life cycle and helped a lot with um, you know getting people to to see rough and, and sort of care about rough and
0: and know that smart people are using it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, when you visit Talk Python or the courses website or others it's it's all roughified. I don't know what the the adjective of rough is, but it's been rough. It's whatever you want to say. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah. It roughed up. It's been roughed up, and it works great. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah, that makes the code sound
2: really bad. But yeah, it's
0: uh, no, it's
3: True. It's, yeah, that's maybe not the best. It's yeah. like saying it's
0: sick. Like, oh, that was a sick trick they did. It, it means yeah, good, but it doesn't say, yeah. yeah, that code is rough, man. All right. Will, is your code rough? Who are
4: you? It's got some rough edges, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. I'm Will. I'm probably best known for a library called uh, Rich. And Rich is a library for writing formatted content and terminal. Um, you can output tables and progress bars and syntax highlighted code, all sorts of things, and uh, that became quite popular in the Python world. I think there was a there was a need for it. And two years ago, I founded Textualize, uh, which is a company which builds on rich to produce a library called Textual, uh, which allows you to build user interfaces inside terminal. And these are kind of more like web interfaces and less like curses
0: applications. Yeah, I was just thinking almost like Flexbox. You can dock stuff to the side, and that's part of a UI. But it's it's pretty amazing, what you've built. Yeah. I think it's pushed the terminal far beyond what many people thought the terminal should be doing.
4: It's been very cool. It's been a process of discovery. And it's kind of strange. You've got technology that's been around for for decades and are still discovering things that they can do, which um, people haven't tried before. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, it's been great to work with uh, a small team of developers. We've got a small core here in Edinburgh, Scotland. And we got one developer in Portugal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's 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 been great, and I've, I love the reception,
0: and I love what people are building with it. Yeah, it's so many people are interested in, in using Rich, and there's a ton of plugins, right? There's like Rich Click, and there's Pytest Rich, and all these things. Like, well, whatever we're doing, it should also have what you built, you know? Yeah, I love to see that. I love to see the ecosystem building. Our our adjective is
4: Richified, which is not Richified. As good as our, okay. Our, yeah. Not
0: just, yo, that's rich. My my code is rich okay rich i got it i love it we all have adjectives we got to put on things <laughs> yeah
2: i'm a big fan of your your you and your team's work by the way i mean i'm sure you hear it all the time that you
0: build awesome stuff <laughs> cheers i appreciate it yeah indeed we all are eric welcome you and i are uh coming in somewhat local here out of portland not istanbul i'm actually out
5: in bend at the moment uh so yeah i absolutely love Bend. so lots of mountains and whatnot but yeah so my my background in air culture, folks probably know me from kind of the Read the Docs ecosystem. I feel like I've been doing this for a while compared to everyone else here. Uh, the project actually started in 2010, which is kind of amazing. And then we actually built the uh, started the company around it in 2014. So coming up next year, that'll be 10 years. And so, yeah, and we're all uh, bootstrapped. So we haven't done any venture capital. It's all been kind of just build, built up the open source and then kind of turned it into a company on top of that. Uh, we kind of have a, a business model of doing paid for private hosting, you know, companies as well as advertising on open source. And we spun out a kind of a separate business called Ethical Ads that we built kind of to basically make, you know, better advertising on the internet, <laughs> not doing well, any of
0: the the creepy tracking stuff. So, Read the docs is so critical to the open source space, not just Python, but especially Python. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so awesome work on that. And then just, you know, good job on the the ad stuff as well. It's the tendency of the whole ad space is to be super creepy. And just like, how much can we resell and how much can we buy to mix in to like create these shadow profiles? And it's not a good social trend. It's it's not good for people and it's not really necessary, right? Like if I want to, you know, I've sponsored ads on uh, Read the Docs or had run ads on Read the Docs before. And I mean, we had a flask course and let's just, you know, run that ad on Flask instead of like, let's see if we can track somebody through Instagram over to Facebook. Who knew? Over right. To whatever, you know, exactly. <laughs>
5: we call it yeah, newspaper advertising. And, and it's sort of been really cool with the advances of ML, like the content targeting has gotten pretty good. Right. So it it's definitely a lot easier technically these days to, to kind of do that content matching. But yeah, I think in terms of the kind of open source, maybe the way that I'm a little different than other folks here is we're actually running something more akin to a service. So read the docs, all the code is open source, but a lot of the usage is open source projects using our hosted service. Uh, we do obviously ship a lot of code. Probably our Sphinx theme is is probably the most kind of well-known actual software that people are running, a little bit similar to the folks here, the kind of sidebar on the left. And, and yeah, so I think that's kind of the background is, yeah, we have a little bit of everything, but yeah, it's a little more akin to something like a SaaS app, I would say, but the code is all open source. We do get uh, contribution in that way as well.
0: Yeah, awesome. And, you know, it sounds a little similar to what Textualize is is working towards as well, hosting. I mean, it's more hosting people's apps than hosting people's docs, but not terribly different.
5: Paying for services is a classic open source monetization strategy, right? Like you have some way to kind of build the monetization on top. So Yeah,
0: it's like, what you build is great, but it's kind of hard for me to run. Could you just do that? Like, yeah, sure, we can do that. Sebastian, always good to see you. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me.
6: Hello everyone. I'm Sebastian Ramirez or Tiangulo. I created this uh, little tool for building web APIs that is called FastAPI and it has been growing quite a bit. People have liked it. Fortunately. And like yeah, that that's, that's it. I'm, I'm probably the only one that hasn't built a company here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, baby, okay. Yes. There, there, there are two of us. <laughs> nice. I want to hear that. Okay, so uh, this year I have been able to work full time on open source because Sequoia Capital, the VC firm, started this open source fellowship, uh, and I am the first fellow, so I am kind of the test trial of like the, the program. So I get, you know, like just to work full time on open source, and that's how I've been able to just yeah release a bunch of stuff in FastAPI and the ecosystem, like the other like FastAPI, SQL Model, hyper and like, a couple of other things. Uh, but yeah, that that's pretty much it.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well. FastAPI is definitely the poster child for modern Python on the web, you know, and Samuel's work obviously is central to that as well, right, with Pydantic being such a, a core element there. So, very awesome.
6: Yeah, and like, I mean, FastAPI is built on top of like great open source tools underneath. their needs. So, Pydantic does all the data validation, serialization, documentation, and on the other side, Starlet does all the web parts. So, yeah, it's like, and like, you know, like it's a very close, how do you call it? Like, uh close friendship between all the projects, Pydantic, Starlet, Ubicorn, FastAPI. Like, you know, like, uh, we, we actually know each, by this point, we actually know each other in person. Like, the current maintainer of Starlet and Ubicorn works for the Pydantic company. <laughs> and, we, and he's like the top FastAPI expert right now. Like, you know, like, it's it's uh, it's very nice because helps the, dynam- the dynamism of, like, yes, speed of building stuff. Uh, it's, it's great.
0: Okay. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people don't realize the interconnections between these different projects that are at play here.
1: Yeah, it's definitely super fun. Absolutely. And then it's worth saying we in Pydantic use FastAPI as well as contributing to the libraries that build it. We also use FastAPI for the services that we're building. So we're like consumers both directly and indirectly of the things that we maintain in open source. Awesome. Chat quite often splashes so those
0: It's turtles all the way down, basically. Exactly. <laughs> this portion of TalkPythonomy I mean, is brought to you by Base Dash. Base Dash is the custom admin panel for your database that you don't have to build. We've all dealt with endless ad hoc requests for data access. Your support team wants user records, your non-technical co-founder needs to see charts, or your engineering team needs an easy way to share your SQL queries. These all sound like relatively simple tasks, but between building an internal tool, setting up an analytics product, and then switching back and forth between that and your SQL client, You've lost so much time. Base dash gives you that time back. With Base dash, you can instantly generate a visual UI for your database. All you have to do is connect your data source. It uses AI under the hood to generate the perfect admin panel for your data. Voila, now anyone in your company has access to the data they need. They're rolling out a ton of new features like the ability to create charts using only natural language. You're gonna get hours back in your day. And I promise you won't want to build an internal tool ever again. Check them out by visiting talkpython.fm/base- that's talkpython.fm/base- the link is in your podcast player show notes. Base- Dash is free for small teams, so give it a try. You've got nothing to lose. Thank you to Base- Dash for supporting the podcast. Gina, also awesome to have you back. Welcome in. Uh,
3: Very happy to be back. That's really, really great to be here now, I think, for the second time. So, and the third if we call Python Bytes. So, yeah, my name is Gina Heuske and I'm probably, yeah, I don't know if I'm I'm that well known throughout the Python uh, community, but I'm quite well known in the 3D printing community for having created Octoprint, which is the snappy web interface for U3D printer. And the server part of that is all written in Python. And I started a project back in 2012 when I got my first 3D printer as your regular pet project on the side after hours vacation, blah, blah, blah. In 2014, I got hired by a 3D printing company to work on it full time. And in 2016, that company ran out of money and I suddenly found myself with a full-fledged, full-grown open source project and no funding whatsoever. So I tried this whole crowdfunding stuff with Patreon and that is pretty much how I've been working ever since. So I'm self-employed under German law, I'm a freelancer and yeah, all my income comes from people who just sent me money uh, for working on Octoprint and doing Did you say
2: since 2016?
3: Since 2016, yeah. Oh, okay,
0: cool.
3: So full-time since 2014 and self-employed and crowdfunded since 2016. So. It's been a while.
0: That's awesome. I also went full time on all my stuff here in 2016. Although it's technically not open source, it talks a whole lot about open source stuff. So totally awesome. But that's it's been a while. Congratulations. Thank
3: you. I'm still surprised yeah. it works. To be honest, I'm I'm uh, waiting every day that it stops working. And yeah, actually this year it came a bit close. And then I put out like a blog post basically along the lines of you know like the income is going this, but the usage numbers are going that, so something is amiss here, and we need to talk. And then the community rallied and stuff fixed itself again. So that is pretty amazing.
0: That's really awesome. Congratulations. It's easy for people to just go, oh, it's free. And there's some people supporting it and just kind of assume that things are taken care of. But yeah, yeah, really good, really good. Yeah, you have a ton of supporters on GitHub sponsors as well, right?
3: Actually, I've diversified over the years. And in the beginning, it was only Patreon and PayPal. And then I started adding new payment platforms and options because people prefer to be able to use the stuff that they know. And some people don't like Patreon. Some people don't like and what don't know GitHub sponsors and stuff. And so you just give them the options to choose whatever they feel comfortable with. And this increases the likelihood that they actually will go through with throwing something in your head, so to speak. Yeah. At least that's my feeling. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I I think that GitHub sponsors has been really positive for open source. I think it's it's made it pretty easy to just check a box. They already have your credit card potentially and you just want to give a little support instead of you know one-time PayPal donation here that you forget about after once and and all that. But before we move on here, there's a funny comment, nice comment out. Kanish says, The this group, look at <laughs> all of you. You guys are the Avengers of Python open source, right? Which is kind of like the superheroes. I love it. It's somewhat actually true, it seems. Okay. So the next thing I want to ask is a little bit of an origin story. Just what projects did you try and then didn't really get traction? And then, you know, how do you think that your project got traction here? And I know, Samuel, you might vanish any minute. So you're next. You're up first on this one.
1: That's a really thing. I've, I've built a number of things in open source. I, I started something last last week. I open source on Friday that has got more stars over the last three days or I guess week now as the the first project I started ARQ has over, I think coming up on six years. So I mean, that's front-end, and front-end gets, gets a lot more and than, than like queuing an RPC does, but um, yeah, I, I don't know how, like, obviously there were, there were some things I played with back then that never took off, but yeah, it was this, like, I think I was the right time, right place for Python. they'd obviously been around in Python for a long time, but back in 2017 when I started Pydantic, their usage was growing really fast, and I think there were lots of people like me who found it kind of frustrating that they were there and didn't do anything, so yeah, I think being the right time, right place was super valuable for me. And obviously, uh, like, great projects like FastAPI adopting adopting Pydantic, have made a big difference. But I don't know. What, what's weird, if you look at the download chart, is like it was this detection point at the beginning of 2021. So then we had, like, 5 million downloads a month. And since then, there's been kind of almost exactly linear growth to now 125 million downloads a month. So something weird happened in 2021. Long after the project started, I don't know. But, yeah, I think it was right place, right time. And, yeah. and that frustration was the starting point. Uh, on that note, I'm going to have to rush guys a bit. It's great to see everyone. And I'm sure I'll meet you all in a conference soon. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for dropping in. Good to see you. Bye-bye. All right. Charlie, keep going around the circle here just to, so I don't... End up...
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I... Like, this... Is, rough is really my first time being a maintainer, like, publishing open... Really, Like, I've been a consumer of open source, right, for my whole career, but I was never really, a, I guess, a creator or a publisher or a maintainer of open source. You know, around the time that I started working on Ruff, I was working on like a couple different projects and they all, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I'd left my job recently and and Ruff was kind of motivated by a lot of the experiences I had at my job where I was like maintaining a large Python
0: code base. Did you leave your job with the intent of going to work on Ruff or were you just like, I'm going to leave and then I'm going to figure something out and you kind of like, well, what was the process there? I
2: left my job with the intent of starting a company. But I did not think it would be rough, and rough was like this distracting side project that I was working on while I was <laughs> like, I was working with a friend, and we were like trying to figure out like the Venn diagram of interests of like what should we, what are we willing to work on full time together, what makes sense given like our interests, and and then in all my free time I was like I just want to work on developer tools, and like I worked on I built I built rough um, or I started building rough. I I worked on like. Um, yeah, I worked on a lot of different not a lot, but like I did was working on a couple of different projects. I did like a, a sort of CI C D thing where you like write Docker files and like CI files in TypeScript and they like transpile down and I was I was like, Oh I think that has a lot of cool ideas. I worked on like uh it was Pretty early in a lot of the LLM stuff, I worked on like a code base wide refactoring tool where you like give it examples of like before and after and then it tries to find examples. It was like a co pilot for your entire code base. Kind of, a, it didn't work that well like at scale, but it was like a cool idea. So I was like working on the stuff. that was all, all open source.
0: That maybe could have been a timing thing. Like maybe today that would be all the, all the business. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, it's also like, um, yeah, you know, it's also an effort thing, <laughs> I guess. Like I, I put a lot more into rough and it was interesting because I kept viewing rough as like, it, you know it was probably open source by at that point but I don't think i had launched like launched it and I kept viewing it as like like I said like a little bit of a distraction and my friend was like you know I think you should really like push to like release this because like if you think it's like interesting then like other people will probably think it's interesting and he was the person that really like motivated me to actually like see it through to doing the release. And then i did the release and like a lot of people were 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 actually interested in it so that kind of gave me like the energy to like really start working on it full time and just kind of see where see where it went and it was really like projects like Pydantic, and like sebastian started like commenting on issues and stuff and i was like wow like real serious projects are looking at this like crazy tool and let me just see i'm just going to do whatever it takes to make it like a feasible choice and just started like cranking through like all the issues and all the things that we were missing it escalated pretty quickly I think did it surprise you oh yes yes absolutely i was convinced that i had faced like this problem around tooling as like our code base got large in my last company and that there was an opportunity to like build like better more performant tooling i genuinely wasn't sure like how widely that message would resonate with people and so i don't know it's like a little bit of luck right like sometimes you work on great projects and then like they go nowhere and like just no one happens to see it. And then sometimes you work on a good thing and like it does go somewhere. And so there are certain things that are within your control, certain things that aren't, I feel like I feel like we did, I did a good job of like communicating the project and like why it was interesting and why it was exciting. But I also feel like I got a little bit lucky that it just like gravitated towards the right people and
0: and got attention in the right ways. Sure. Also maybe that black had existed, which is a little ironic because black kind of solves a real similar problem, but like people were, okay, we embrace the idea of the thing that rough does Really well. You know, you just convince them to use rough in that sense.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have a little bit, I mean, it gets back to this. Like we have a little bit of like a like a second mover advantage, right? Where yes, like exactly. there's a lot of existing tools that people use already and like a lot of those practices, like the idea of using a formatter, the idea of running code mods, like the idea of using a linter, and like the knowledge of like what kinds of rules are valuable and like what kinds of analysis we can do. Like all this stuff existed. And that was part of Part of the story really was I was like these tools are great and I get a lot of value out of them, but I want them to be like easier and faster. Um, and so yeah, there's definitely a strong timing thing. I think like I think Rust too. This is maybe like a little bit more specific to what we're doing, but like you know I think like the intersection between Python and Rust has, or the I guess the um the interoperability between them and sort of the ecosystem around it has just grown a lot. I mean still I would say like pretty early, but it's like matured and grown a lot over the past few years, and so. Even just the fact that, like, at my last company, we started to introduce Rust and we started to like move some of our core systems into Rust and and expose them over PyO three. Like the fact that that was existed and the fact that I was like exposed to that, like that's all just like
0: pure chance. Otherwise, I never would have thought to do this. Very cool. Well, congrats, well deserved. We're all, we're all doing the all using Rust as as we said is excellent. Will Rich is awesome. How? Why do you think it took off? Did you try stuff before?
4: What's the story? I tried a lot of stuff before before GitHub. You know, coding has always been my hobby. You know, I'd do it for work and I'd come home and work on a hobby project and it just seemed natural to want to share it. Pre-GitHub, I would just put stuff on my blog and get some feedback from it there. I quite enjoyed that. And yeah, I have a number of open source projects. Pre-Rich, I had a BB code parsing library. I had a chess library. I had a, a web toolkit. So yeah, when Rich came along, it was um, another hobby project, something to keep me entertained. Why why is this terminal so boring? Come on. See what we can do about that. You know, I'd always use the terminal and I'd always struggled when you've got a page of white text on black background and you're trying to pick out an IP address from somewhere. And you know, I'd always wished oh I wish I could just it would just format it and colorize it for me. I know this is possible, but it doesn't happen. So then yeah, I, I just I started it and it came together quite well. When I released it, it was like boom, um the stars just started out accumulating. Got lots of feedback. It was it was very exciting, and uh, I kept building on it. It was kind of like um, issue driven development. So people would just ask for something, and I'd go, oh, that's a good idea, and, and go ahead and that and implement it. And uh, it it grew from there, and it became really large. I did a, actually prior to Rich, I had a library called Py File System, and this is kind of like a, a wrapper to file systems, so you can have the same interface for your FTP server as a hard drive, for a zip file, SV bucket, and that got some use in the community. It wasn't enormous, but um, that taught me a lot about building open source, you know, managing feedback issues, et cetera. So that was a great experience when I started working on on Rich. And uh, I, I was very surprised actually how successful it became. I remember the first time I realized that this was bigger than just a hobby project is when someone told me off for violating Semver, I released a, a, <laughs> clear, a clear breaking change because I thought oh, nobody's using that yet. They were. So the next day, I got told off quite appropriately. And then I thought, okay, I'll have to take this more seriously. If people are using this in their day job, they can't just have someone who's just like throwing new bits of code and changing functionality. Uh, they had to had to treat it like as it was an actual my day job.
0: Yeah. Well, everyone on the call here probably has a little bit of nervousness about like, if I break this, there are a lot of people that depend on this thing.
2: Yeah. And it's so different. Like, it just changes so much. Like, the early, like, when you were talking about the issue driven development thing, too, I was like, I just remember that phase of like rough where it was like anyone who cared all about the project, all I wanted to do is like make them happy. <laughs> right. And I was like, them. oh, wow. Yeah. Like, that seems like a cool idea. Like, let's definitely do it. And i would just like, you know, it was the point in time where I could like fix the bug, cut a release the same day. And then like their thing is fixed and then it's like yeah. okay great now we have a relationship like thanks for using my thing like blah 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 i just think like but that change has changed so much right because then i went through the same experiences of like i i ship a release with the breaking change that i didn't really document a lot of people get upset and then you realize okay i actually have some more responsibility now
3: yeah these days it's more like trying to find the balance between saying no to stuff that you then have to end up maintaining and not like Disappointing people too much because you say no, or things like that, and then trying to to keep this whole um, interaction with people nice, even though you don't want to do stuff they they want you to do because you know it's better for the project.
0: This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Sentry. You know Sentry for their air monitoring service, the one that we use right here at Talk Python, but this time I want to tell you about a new and free workshop. He mean the Kraken, managing a Python monorepo with Sentry. Join Salma Alam Nayor, senior developer advocate at Sentry, and David Winterbottom, head of engineering at Kraken Technologies, for an inside look into how he and his team develop, deploy, and maintain a rapidly evolving Python monorepo with over 4 million lines of code that powers the Kraken utility platform. In this workshop, David will share how his department of 500 developers, who deploy around 200 times a day, use Sentry to reduce noise, prioritize issues, and maintain code quality without relying on a dedicated q and team. You'll learn how to find and fix root causes of crashes, ways to prioritize the most urgent crashes and errors, and tips to streamline your workflow. Join them for free on Tuesday, February 27th, 2024 at 2 a.m. Pacific Time. Just visit talkpython.fm slash sentry-monorepo. That link is in your podcast player show notes. 2 a.m. might be a little early here in the U.S., but go ahead and sign up anyway if you're a U.S. listener because I'm sure they'll email you about a follow-up recording as well. Thank you to Sentry for supporting this episode. PRs are like cake or
4: puppies. Uh, If it's a simple bug fix, that's like cake. You'd like, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed that cake, then move on. But some PRs are like a puppy. It's like it's perfect, you like puppies, but you've got to feed them and clean up after them.
0: Why am I standing in the rain with this puppy on like a Friday night? How do I get here? Collecting the puppies, poop. Yes, exactly. Sometimes you say
4: thank you, but I just can't I just can't look after another puppy right now. That's a difficult thing to come to terms with when the project gets a bit more mature. Because previously you're accepting all the puppies, but then you have to start saying no, no to puppies. And rich definitely got there because it accumulated. Do you hate
0: puppies? Come on, that's a pretty hard stance.
4: <laughs> I'm kind of a cat person, to be honest with you. But yeah, I mean, you have to say no eventually. Yeah,
5: I think this is where this is where plugins always kind of like take the center stage, right? You're like, just oh, that sounds like a great idea for you to maintain external to my library.
3: <laughs> that was exactly my approach to the whole situation. Yep. Here's a plugin API, have fun.
6: (laughs) But also the probability of some little change breaking someone's code and like being considered a breaking change grows as the project grows in usage. And like, you know, Mm -hmm. like at some point it's like almost any change will end up breaking someone in very unexpected ways because they are doing something really, really weird, but you know, like someone is doing it. So like it, it, it becomes... More and more difficult to know, like is this a breaking change or not? Like no one should be using this variable here or this parameter, but like you know, there's someone out there doing that. So mm-hmm. I feel defining what is actually a breaking change and what is what uh, what is a strict semver gets more difficult as things grow. Yeah,
5: I don't know. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like that the Django project did was kind of basically only things that are documented are supported. Basically, that was kind of the line they drew. And I thought that was a pretty good, pretty good way to to draw it. But yeah, you're always, you know, that never actually works. That doesn't make people happy. It just gives you plausible deniability.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't yell at me. It's not my fault. I think adding
2: a formal like versioning policy is one of the best things that we did because for a long time, rough was just, we only used patch releases. So we got to like zero, zero, like 285 or something. <laughs> and we had basically no guarantees about what would or wouldn't change like across releases. And as the project got more and more popular, like that started to cause more and more problems. And so Zany, someone on our team, like when they joined, one of the first few things they did was like create an actual form- formal versioning policy. And we added like preview behavior. So like you can opt similar to that what block has kind of opt in to like, Breaking or more experimental changes. And so now we have like clear expectations around what it means to like bump a minor release, et cetera, et cetera. And like that has made our lives a lot easier, like actually having clear expectations around that that are communicated and respected. But it's the kind of thing that you just don't think about at all until it, at least I didn't <laughs> until the ratchet got
0: bigger. Yeah. Some people's code runs things like FastAPI or Octoprint or whatever. Your stuff rewrites people's code.
2: <laughs> yeah, but at least it doesn't run at runtime. I don't know. I actually think it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right, Eric. I find you talk about the plugins thing because, like, I've actually like, very intentionally taken the opposite approach, which is we have like almost no public API <laughs> because, like, the only public API is the CLI, and like we don't expose our API in any other way. And that's because like we know we're going to change like everything internally like pretty dramatically, and so we wanted to have like full control over that without having to worry about breaking people's stuff yet. But it's like it's starting to become more of a problem because more and more people want to use it as a library in like different ways. But it's, it's sort of a counterintuitive way to like make our lives easier as maintainers was like not expose any public
0: API apart from the CLI. Yeah, very interesting.
2: Funny, funny sort of
6: anecdote. I'm uh, rewriting a lot of the documentation for SQL model. Uh, because I want to have examples. Right, right now, I have examples that are compatible with Python 3.7 and above, but actually 3.6 and above. But I want to have also the syntax for 3.9 and 3.10. In 3.10, you can have like the unions using the vertical bar and these things. And I want to have examples for each one of those. So the approach I did was to write a script that will automatically update each one of the files by calling rough as a soup process. So that's the API. <laughs> and then like, you know, like, I mean, the process like doing all that stuff. But like, yeah, it's like, And another fanboy of (laughs) trying to (laughs) use it as an API before it's
5: available. Yeah, with
2: with lack of an API, right? An API will be created. (laughs) Exactly. I've heard this before as like Hiram's law, which is like with a sufficiently large number of users, like any implementation detail, Become someone will eventually rely on an implementation detail. Like any arbitrary implementation, someone is probably relying on that behavior, <laughs> which is basically the behavior of the program
0: is the API. And the unfortunately, they'll find the underscore functions you've tried to dissuade them from using and all the things. Yeah. Um, Eric, what's the the origin story for Read the Docs and what did you try and how do you think it caught on? Yeah.
5: So, I mean, this was kind of way back in the day, but yeah, I kind of got started writing Django plugins, you know, apropos to the conversation. Uh, You know, I was working at um, the Lawrence Journal world where Django came from and it was kind of early in my career and I was just kind of getting excited about open source and blogging and just basically built a few of these kind of testing related open source projects. And then that was kind of where I got started with open source. And then basically it was the classic scratch, scratch your own itch thing, right? Like, it's like, I have a bunch of open source projects. I want to write documentation. How do I solve that problem? And back in the day, that was a, a much harder problem to solve, right? It was basically just like build a zip file and upload it to a uh, packages.python.org. If uh, folks remember that one
1: mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> or was it packages or whatever the docs, there was a docs hosting uh, on PyPI basically. And yeah, basically just wanted to kind of build a better version of that, that integrated with GitHub. I feel like webhooks were like the cool new thing back in 2010. You know? <laughs> uh, and so that was really kind of the insight, right? It's like, let's build this kind of like CI/CD workflow on top of webhooks. And actually did build kind of a version of that the previous year around kind of like code quality stuff. So it actually ran kind of like a linter and built a website on commit and had a similar kind of workflow, right? Where it like gave you a grade and did all this kind of stuff, which is like 2009. And yeah, that... That didn't really catch on at all, but then I think read the docs. Just we built it, and then I was using it for my own projects, and I actually had the need to kind of maintain it and, and keep it updated. And then I think people just kind of kind of grew naturally. You know, gave some conference talks, that kind of stuff. But I think it just solved a problem that people had, and that's always going to be the you know the best way to to grow a thing. So
0: yeah, absolutely awesome. What's read the docs written in? Is it Django? Yeah, it's all Django and Python. Uh, funny coincidence. I went to college in Lawrence. At the University of Kansas, so oh nice. I was right there, right at the the heart of Django, but I moved off to grad school like a couple of years before all that happened. So I missed missed the excitement.
5: I grew up in Virginia, and everyone was like, "You're going to Kansas? You graduated school? Like what? How are you going there? Like what?" <laughs> Everybody thought it was the weirdest decision, but yeah, like I really do think you know, ending up in that Python and Django ecosystem has been pretty transformative to my to my life. So you know, worked out.
0: <laughs> Lawrence is a pretty cool little town, actually, of all the places. Yeah. Sebastian, how would you come about this crazy idea to put types into our web apps? You know, Python, that's dynamic. It doesn't have types. What are you doing?
6: Yeah, I don't know. It's so crazy. It's so, it's so fun to see. It said Michael Larson in the chat, like, uh, they maintain our URL D3 and they buy the Python uh, security developer in Resilience, just like chatting along with us. Like, he probably has had to deal with so much stuff as us. It's just yeah, i here. sure early, for I'm but. sure. So like the, some of the first things that I did in open source were actually Docker images for deploying Flask because I was working with Flask and deploying Flask was difficult and I needed to be able to combine Nginx with UWSGI and like a bunch of things and like they all had their own custom configuration files and it was, you know, like so difficult. I didn't like doing that and then I just had to study how to do that stuff and then after going through all that, I wanted to save everyone else's time doing that. So we're like, well, let's just put a Docker image with this and a lot of documentation of how this Docker image works and how it, how you can use it with some sensible defaults. So, you know, it was just like a weird contraption. That was it. But it actually grew and like got like, a few stars, like a bunch of stars. For me, it was a lot, you know, like a hundred stars. Oh my gosh, I'm an open source developer. <laughs> and then like at some point, it had like a thousand stars or something like that. I was so happy about that. And at some point, it was kind of the de facto standard for doing Flask, uh, Docker, Flask Indoc. That was the, the first thing that I did. I ended up with FastAPI. I was I was avoiding building FastAPI for a long while and I was trying all the other all frameworks and all the other tools. I, I was convinced that there was something that would do the things that I wanted, I just had to find it. And as I was trying different frameworks also in different languages, I was extending the list of things that I wanted to have and also the list of things that I wanted not to have. For example, I didn't and I want to copy. that
0: takes you farther and farther away from any exactly like having, your own.
6: having one that will tick all the voices. So it was like, ah, uh, but then I realized, like, I really like this thing of having types, as in TypeScript, because you get out of completion and inline errors. And this is so cool. It's so cool to be able to have this. Hey, I want to have this in Python. And then Python added type annotations. And it's just like, this is great. How do I use them? There's no way to use them with the current frameworks. So at some point, I actually found the right framework. It was called API Star by the same author of Django REST framework. It was just missing some authentication stuff. I said, like, okay, I'm going to contribute to the auth- stuff when I was about to jump into the code, he said, I have to deprecate this. I will go focus full on Starlet. And then he went to build Starlet. This is Tom Christie, which is super prolific and an amazing open source person in general. And then at that point is when I said like, ah, damn it, just have to try it. Let's just do it. So I'm just going to try to build something that will be kind of a spiritual successor to API Star, built on top of Starlet. So I was, you know, like I was actually inheriting all the learnings from, Flask, Django, Django REST framework, and all the, the ecosystem, and just like bringing all those ideas together. At least that was my intention. And then I wanted to have a bit of better type annotations. So I, I saw that Pydantic was using standard type annotations. So people wouldn't have to learn this, like, you know, from FastAPI import special string or something like that, just instead of that, just use pure string. So I wanted to have something based on standards, like OpenAPI, JSON schema, and all the stuff. And based on standard Python and to have like the simplest syntax possible and to you know like give the best developer experience possible while you know like not adding like any any additional steps for developers to build something that by default will have all the best practices built in. That was the the intention. And I was just like trying to solve it for the things that I was working on. I was supposed to be doing AI and machine learning and stuff, but like I had to stop for a bit to solve. APIs, I got stuck in APIs, <laughs> that's how I ended up with
0: last API. Oh, I think you made a pretty decent choice. It seems like fast API is doing all right.
6: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just saw you- um... Much better than what I
0: ever had expected. Yeah, I know. Congratulations. It's, well, it's also deserved. But I also just saw an X, I don't know, a post on X Twitter, whatever you, however you would... Address these things, where you said you showed a, a, a graph where the number of st- GitHub stars for FastAPI just passed Flask, and you know I have a lot of respect for Flask and the Palace team and David Lord and, and all those folks, but you know, awesome, awesome that your your stuff has taken off so much. That's really cool.
6: It's super cool. It's amazing, and you know, like Flask was one of the big inspirations for FastAPI, and I've been able to to be at this point. It's it's crazy. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I still can't uh, get over it. Yeah, super cool. Super cool to be able to build all this and to keep building more stuff.
0: So yeah, super nice. Yeah, one one final uh, comment before we move on to Octoprint. But one of the things I kind of see you doing in the world is you're like the the combiner. You're like, oh, we've got this cool stuff with Pydantic. and. Starlet, and how could we combine it in this way to make this, you know, and, and Swagger, and like, similarly with SQL model, you're like, well, Pydantic is cool, and, but uh, SQL Alchemy is kind of cool, but it could be more better, you know, like, it could be better, right? So, anyway, good job. Yeah, and also, up. like,
6: Typer, that, that is the, the library for building command line applications, is just click with the type annotations, the same ideas from Pydantic, and now with, you know, like, integrated built-in support for reach, so, like, also picking Will's work, trying just, just to put a bunch of things together. I, I'm just, you know, like I'm just making cocktails everywhere. It is very
2: cool. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's more than that, but
0: there is a lot of value in combining things in a smart way an accessible way. Yeah, awesome. All right, Gina, you told us a little bit about the origin story, but like, what did you try before? And then I have a follow-up question that I think is unique to your project.
3: I wouldn't necessarily say that I tried anything before because the whole thing was completely unintentional. I basically bought myself a 3D printer in late 2012, I wanted to be able to put it in my spare bathroom and monitor it from afar because back then this thing was tying up my PC. You had to constantly have keep it connected so it could operate and that for hours and hours and it made noises and it produced fumes. And I just wanted it out of my office and to be able to play games on my PC again instead of having it. Yeah basically communicate constantly with a 3D printer. And so I bought myself a Raspberry Pi and I was looking online for something to be able to just put on this Pi and attach to the printer and throw a Wi-Fi dongle in because back then the Pi didn't have Wi-Fi built in and throw that in the spare bathroom, but there wasn't anything. So over the course of my uh, Christmas break in 2012, I sat down and changed that. And this is basically the origin story of Octoprint. I just wanted to scratch my own itch. I wanted to put my printer in my spare bathroom. This is all. <laughs> and apparently a lot of people had the same problem because I just, you know, like how, how we like to do these things. We build something that we think might be interesting. We throw it up on GitHub and. Go just like here, go nuts, enjoy, have fun with that. And I suddenly started getting emails from all around the world, like, hey, I have this in this printer. Can you also make it work with that? And so this escalated and I went like, oh, someone is using it. Of course, I'm going to add this support. And of course, I'm going to add this feature. And it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And apparently I just hit a nerve. So this was utterly unplanned. This was never my intention at all. And I just wanted to solve my own problem and have continue to solve my own problems and the problems of other people ever since. Before Octoprint, I actually was also quite active in a little project called DokuWiki, where I was uh, developing some plugins for that. And I even did open source before I knew what open source was with some PHP scripts when I was 18 or so that I threw up on my website. But yeah, Octoprint was like, it took over my life. It just was an accident, a happy little accident, maybe.
0: how do you decide, okay, this is a, a job for me rather than uh, just a thing you worked on?
3: The thing is, by 20 th- mid-2013, I went to 80% on my regular day job. I used to be a software architect slash consultant with big corporation, Java World, all that enterprise stuff. And to, to be able to dedicate one day per week fully to Octoprint, plus, of course, the weekends and the after hours and the vacations and all of that, And that still didn't suffice anymore by 2014. And I noticed that it was impacting my health, it was impacting my relationships. And that was actually quite perfect timing, really, when this this company that hired me initially approached me and said, hey, do you want to maybe fly out to us and we'll chat? And if you like all of that, what we have to propose, then we can just do that. And this is how it then continued to go from 2014 until 2016. And yeah, it was never my intention to become self-employed. I'm a quite risk averse person, actually. So when this point came where I was like, "Okay, either I find a way to keep funding this or I have to really drop it because it was way too big by then to be kept as a pet project without being utterly, utterly unhealthy. Yeah, I decided to jump into the cold water and have been trying to keep up (laughs) (laughs) at the surface ever since, basically. So, yeah. All of that really completely unplanned.
0: Cool. What an adventure, huh?
3: Indeed, yeah. And the good thing is, even if people don't understand what open source is or what code is, I always have quite a topic at parties. So that is fun because, yeah, like people give you money for something they can get for free? What?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. If you're not familiar with open source, then it definitely is a weird... Absolutely. Thing it, say, it was yeah. tricky
3: to find a tax consultant who understands the concept. So Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
6: I'm sure. All right. I was very recently, I was like, what do you do? What is your day job? And like, oh, I'm a software developer. So you work for a company. Not, not really. And what is it that you do? Well, I, I built a that is free for others to use. And who's playing you? A company that pays money to companies to build companies. So you're building a company. No, it's actually, you know, like it was a long conversation. They got bored and (laughs) (laughs) left.
0: This doesn't make any sense. Yeah.
3: I've just taken to say I'm a software developer and I work with with 3D printers and then people usually stop asking questions because 3D printers are this mysterious thing that no one understands. Anyhow, usually at least and then, yeah, unless they say, oh, 3D printers. And then I say, yeah, do you know 3D printers? And they go, yeah, yeah, I have one. And then I can say, oh, do you know Octoprint? Yes. Oh, yeah, I made that. And then, oh, yeah, it's tricky to explain to people. I'm sometimes not even sure my parents understand
0: what I do. So I'm sure that my parents don't understand what I do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's OK. I'm sure they're still proud of you anyway. It's fine.
3: Yeah, my, my definitely are proud of me.
0: I would like to just maybe getting a little short on time. You're coming up to the end of our Avengers meeting. Let's close it out with this go around one more time and let you all, or maybe just as a group, kind of chime in on this. Speaking to the people out there listening who want to start an open source project or want to contribute to open source or somehow kind of get involved in similar ways, what would you do different if you started now? Many of you have been working on this for a long time. You've had a lot of experience. Like if somebody said, well, the world is, you know, somehow the memory has been erased from <laughs> the fact that rough or Rich or Octopred or whatever existed, you know, to start over what would you do different or or the same?
3: I would use fast API. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Yay! Good use of a time machine there. Everybody, like I've had multiple conversations over the years where people are like, why don't you use this library? I'm like, oh, it didn't exist. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly, yeah, that,
3: this is the problem, right? <laughs> exactly. When you actually have a plugin system, then swapping out stuff like that can become... Very tricky.
6: Absolutely. When I get asked what to work on, what to study, what to focus, how to get into open source or like almost any of those questions, I always say that the, the, the main advice I give is just to focus on a problem that is important to you. More than, you know, like innovation, market disruption or whatever, just like focus on a problem that is actually important to you. Hopefully that is important to others as well. And if it's not a problem that affects you directly, hopefully it affects someone that is very close to you, so you can get like a very tight feed, feedback loop of what you are building. And then try to solve that. And then use that as the guide of what to do, what to learn, what to focus on, what to do. In many cases, it's just learning a framework that all it's already there. You know, like why will I go and build a A system to control 3D printers instead of just like learning how to use OctoPrint. In many cases, solving the problem is just like using the tool that is already there. But then in some cases, you end up figuring out that there's no tool and you just have to build it. There's actually no uh, linter and formatter that can be super fast so you can run it every time you just hit save. So then you just have to build it in Rust and like create ROF. Or like, you know, like there's always like this thing that you are trying to solve that is just not solved there yet. And that is what gives you the best value and the best outcome. In many cases, it can be just like you know contributing to another open source project or building something new. But the the thing is like for me, it's just like focusing on a problem that is important. That is what what uh, what has worked for me at least. Good advice. I
3: would add to that that you really shouldn't try to. You need to be really passionate about the thing as well, right? It needs to be something that is really something you're into, something that will. That you want, will want to spend a lot of time on that is actually not your working hours and such, because otherwise the the whole jog until this becomes anything viable, anything big enough to support you in any kind of way, even if it's just being able to I don't know drink an additional coffee per week or something, that will be a, a quiet long slog and a lot of work and a lot of blood and sweat and tears, and so you really need to be into this so that you want to do that. If you are just in that for the end goal of I don't know becoming rich through open source, which, by the way, will probably not work.
6: Only will I got rich,
3: <laughs> then, then this will not work out. You need to focus on the path to the goal and not the goal. A lot of people try to reach for the end goal before they actually are willing to actually walk the path. I also get this along. I, I happen to be uh, in the GitHub star program and I've had a lot of people ask me, how do you become a GitHub star? And that is just the wrong question to ask. That's just the same as it is. How do you become an open source maintainer of a popular project like you you just have to do whatever you are interested in. You have to do work and you have to be passionate about your work. And then maybe if you hit the right nerve, then that will happen. And maybe it won't. I
4: think it's very interesting that none of us had like a career path to where we are now. We didn't set out to be where we are now. It just feels like um, we were kind of followed our own intuition and it worked out. Which means it's very difficult when someone asks me, well, how do you become an open source developer? How do you start a company? It's like, I'm not quite sure. I can tell you my path to to, to there, but it's very hard for me to articulate to someone else how to get there. I think and there's just, a lot
5: of luck involved as well, right? It's like, you have to do all this stuff and then roll this dice. If it gets a six, then you can be successful. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, there's an element of luck, but it's kind of like a luck you make for, for yourself. Yeah. And it, it might take you to somewhere
0: else or it might not. But as long as you're passionate about it and you enjoy it, then great things will happen I think. Well also Will and Charlie you both took some specific time on your own money to really level up what you're working on which is that's pretty brave right like not a lot of people would say I'm just gonna spend my savings to work on this project and see if I can make it go so I mean, you've earned some of that through taking that chance and putting in that time and effort I think. For me that didn't last very long because um 15 months I was living on GitHub sponsorship. VCs <laughs> came
4: along and, the, and then there was like cash and everything <laughs> changed.
0: Your world changed and you had to learn a whole new set of skills, I'm sure. But yeah, had a,
4: a job and responsibilities.
0: <laughs> I do feel really lucky
2: that, like I said, this is my first time being a maintainer. And like it was very clear to me quickly that, like, for Rough to have the pace of development and like the scope that it has, it like had to be a full time thing. And like that, that was pretty obvious to me quickly. And I just, I have a lot of respect for people who've been maintainers for longer periods of time, and in a way where it's not their full-time job or they have to do it on the side. I think I haven't really been in that position, but it's already clear to me that that takes like a lot of dedication and commitment. So I'm just I feel very lucky that I get to work on open source full time. I know it's not all entirely luck, right? Like we were saying, like you increase your luck surface area, and then opportunities come your way. But like, but I do think. It's just a very fortunate position that like these kind of opportunities do exist. Because yeah. maintaining popular stuff is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. There are privileges that come with it, 100%. But I mean, yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a lot of work and a lot of stress
0: yeah. and a lot of responsibility. Well, and you don't necessarily have to start your own right away.
3: I didn't have gray hair before this. <laughs>
0: you don't necessarily have to start your own either. You could contribute to a really popular one and kind of get into the scene. And, you know, like, Eric, that sounds a little bit like your story. Like you were in the Django scene and then spun off from that. What you guys are doing, right?
5: Yeah, definitely, and you know, part of an open source community, and definitely kind of going to PyCon and and just kind of being surrounded by those people because that was always the. It, it's very lonely work just to have a an inbox of GitHub issues and then no inbox thank yous, <laughs> you know, and like going to conferences and that kind of stuff was really where you you feel the appreciation and you really kind of actually feel the the b- value that you're providing as well as just the the stress of the uh, of the things you're breaking. So
6: <laughs> totally agree with that.
0: Absolutely. The conferences are great to really feel the appreciation rather than just the the requests. They'll say
5: thank you and then they'll give you a bug report, but at least (laughs) the thank you.
0: Well, (laughs) you know, while I'm talking to you, there was this could I just show you this one thing we're doing that's not
1: working right? Like, oh gosh, here we go.
2: An interesting observation for me has been that, like, a year ago, I didn't really know anyone in Python open source, like, at all. And, like, I was a user of Python in my day job every day, but, like, I was not interacting with Python. And in a year, Yeah, now, like Sebastian, we've interacted a bunch. Like, there's just a lot of people that I've come to know and think of as like friends. So, I think they're really, you know, especially if you're interested in getting involved and like putting in work, I really don't think there are significant barriers. And like, you get out of it what you put in. So, I think I've been very impressed with just how welcoming and friendly the community has
0: been, especially other maintainers. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to a lot of people who show up at PyCon, and they're like, "I was really nervous to come here, or I feel like it didn't fit in." And they're, you know, just had such a, a great experience. And I said, "Well, did you feel uh, like out of?" That was my first PyCon this
2: year. I'd never been to a Py, I'd never been to a PyCon conference, and so I was and like, "And we
0: ended up at such an amazing party." Or <laughs> <as well>. Benihana. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's true. I love the Benihana. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that was interesting. All right, guys. Well, I think we are. Pretty much out of time. Anyone want to have some final thoughts for listeners before we wrap it up? Go on, build some cool stuff. Yeah, who's brave enough? <laughs> <laughs> How come a trainer today, I think? Give cake, not puppies. Let's leave it with that, huh? All right, give cake, not
3: puppies. And be really careful before you start a popular open source project. It might take over your life. <laughs> exactly. If you want this, great. But if not, then
0: <laughs> Yeah, careful what you wish for. You might get it. Exactly. Gina, Sebastian, Eric, Will. Charlie, thank you all for being on the show. This has been a ton of fun.
6: Thank you very much for having us. A pleasure and an honor
0: to be with these amazing people. Thank you for the invitation. I agree. I,
2: honestly, I had a blast just like hearing everyone's stories because I hadn't heard any of this before. So thanks thanks to everyone else and thanks, Michael. Yeah, you bet. Bye,
0: all. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. This episode is sponsored by BaseDash. Base dash uses AI to build a dashboard for your database. Get a custom admin view in your Postgres, Microsoft SQL Server, MySQL, MariaDB, or Redshift database. Get started for free at talkpython.fm slash BaseDash. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TALKPYTHON. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes the Google Play feed at slash play and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.